Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast. If you're just joining us for the first time ever, welcome. Welcome to your Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. What the heck is it? Well, my name's Ned. I'm your host. And uh, usually we have conversations with people in the world about their creatively conscious mortal being in the world. So we have guests that are artists, musicians. We have also guests that are professionals working in healthcare. Uh, we have human beings engaging with social justice. We have writers. We have so many different kinds of guests, but the intersection though, the place that connects is this, what are you doing in the world and where does it connect to grief and loss and death and dying and the hard parts of being mortal? Or maybe how do we source all those things that we do creatively to heal, to inspire our lives, deepen our existence, enrich our being in the universe? Uh, and sometimes we just like laugh a lot about uh, the fact that we're going to die someday. So, you know, it's a mixed bag and just glad I'm here in your ear. So thank you, everybody, for listening and welcome back to all of you that have been supporting the show. It means so much. Speaking of supporting the show, a quick shout out to The Death Deck, the sponsor of today's episode. The Death Deck is a lively game of surprising conversations. And later in the episode, we'll play the game for you. Producer Nick Jana and I will pull a card and see what happens. But thank you to The Death Deck. Check out thedeathdeck.com, and we'll give you a discount code a little bit later in the episode to get your own stack of deathy cards. Now, I am excited so the history of the podcast for me is really strongly connected to a few shows, but one in particular is Radiolab. I was listening to Radiolab years and years ago, um, kind of when podcasts were coming into our ears more and more often. And now it's like everybody and, and their sibling slash family member, friend, community member are doing their own podcast. And, and that's cool because we all get to be out there. But if you have listened to podcasts for a long time, some somehow you probably have come across, I think, one of the best produced podcasts, and it's Radiolab. And so what's exciting about today is that one of the people that creates the magic of Radiolab is on You're Going to Die, the podcast. As you listen to the episode, it's not just cool because of that connection. It's great because Rachel Cusick, producer of the show, the radio show and podcast Radio Lab, is such a wonderful human being that I just move on from Radio Lab or doing podcasts in general to just really reveling in connecting to another human on these topics that I'm seeking places to talk about these things. And so my arrival in this conversation with Rachel, the first time we've ever talked, felt like getting to talk with an old friend about one of our favorite things. And um, that's weird, of course, to admit that one of my favorite things is talking about the death in my life, the deaths, the dead, the loss, the grief. But I think you get it by now, even if you're just joining us. Um, 
I mean, the show is called You're Going to Die, the podcast. So that's what happens here. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. And I think that it's based on how Rachel describes who she is. It's one of her favorite things, too. Rachel is a producer at the public radio program and podcast Radio Lab, and you can usually find her, and I quote, in a corner somewhere talking about food or grief, one or the other, or maybe both. In fact, today you get to hear her talk about both. She spent the last year reporting an audio biography on the surprising life of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the woman who gave us the five stages of grieving. And this is where I need to give a shout out to Lulu Miller, one of the hosts of Radio Lab, and, and has been a producer of the show. Lulu, uh, big gratitude to Lulu for connecting me up to Rachel before this episode was coming out. She said, one of our producers is working on an episode, and, and I feel like this would be a good time to, to get you guys together to have a conversation. If you haven't listened to the episode, uh, please do, not yet, don't leave. Listen to this first. But we do want to play you a little excerpt from Rachel's episode of Radio Lab. And I think important to know that Rachel's arrival in producing this episode comes from, I guess, unsurprisingly, her own personal loss. Um, the death of her mom uh, when she was six. And subsequently, as she's gotten older, knowing that what it means to grieve as a six-year-old is certainly going to change as you become a teenager and become a woman. And so the grief that has emerged since then about that loss, I, I think I can say that that seems like a beginning to her introduction to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her finding out about the five stages of grief and trying to figure out where she matches them and realizing maybe she doesn't and figuring out a lot more than that, including that the five stages of grief weren't initially written and offered to the grieving, but actually they were created out of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work with the dying. But the thing is, when Elizabeth created these things, they were stages a dying person would go through, not a grieving person like me. And they weren't even as tidy and orderly as the world made them out to be. If you actually go back and read Elizabeth's book on death and dying, <sighs> which I did, I, uh, I just had to take my retainer out for reading this. I'd read it every night before bed. So yeah, there's like, how many chapters? Oh my God, I'm so bad with Roman numerals. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. 12 chapters, only five stages. And the stages really just serve as these chapter headers. He starts each chapter with these poems. Like when you get to those pages, it's really hard to find. Just all these beautiful transcripts. One singular emotion. These means will last for different periods of time and she says you could go through all these stages and then repeat some, replace each other, or exist at times side by side. This book is not a five-stage shaped anything. What does the preface say? 
I've worked with dying patients for the past two and a half years, and this book will tell about the beginning of this experiment. And the first page literally says, it is not meant to be a textbook on how to manage dying patients, nor is it intended as a complete study of the psychology of dying. It is simply an account of a new and challenging opportunity to refocus on the patient as a human being. This is the goal of the book, like, that is it. I'm simply telling the stories of my patients. The real substance of this book it is hoped that it will encourage others not to shy away from the hopelessly sick, but to get closer to them. The ocean of color and texture that the stages are tucked inside is not escaping death, it's standing in it and not running away. If we do not come and give them a pat on the back and say, don't cry, it's not so bad. It is bad to leave everything, everything. and everybody yes. you love. So if we help them be angry and help them be sad and let them express it and cry and not say, you're a man, it's not manly to cry. I yes. think this is terrible. And like everything that you're feeling is okay. And none of it should fit into these boxes. But like the best thing that we can do for each other as human beings is to just sit there and listen to it as it's coming up. Just be you. If you feel like screaming, you scream. If you feel like crying, you cry. Don't try to follow a textbook or have somebody else tell you what to do. Trust yourself, your own natural emotions. Like, when I read it, I shot up in bed. Because <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is it. This book, it wasn't meant for me. It, it was meant for my mom. And she never let herself feel those things. I think it was because she was just trying to fight it for so long and be there for us. And like death wasn't an option for her, but it was, it was like the only thing. And so when she, when she died, I don't know, for me, at least I felt like I had to stay strong for her. But then here was Elizabeth in some way, kind of talking to both of us and saying like, it could have gone differently. I can't listen to that clip without getting emotional and tearing up. And there's so many moments throughout the episode which had me laughing and, and crying. And it's such a good measurement for when to say yes next. I, I, of course, I would have been uh, a dummy not to say yes to having a conversation with Rachel. But after listening to the episode, it just felt so right to know we were going to get to talk. Like I've said before, the tears and, and maybe the laughter, too, are that measurement for proximity to truth. And the episode moves in such a way. It really holds you and carries you through a journey, starting with this access point to finding out more about someone, things I just never knew about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Amazing, like really, really amazing story of her life. So surprising where it, where it comes from and where it ends up, but also the moments in the episode that capture Rachel's experience, not from her life and the loss of her life so far, but also the loss and heartbreak that emerges while she's working on the episode. So when you're done listening here, because you have a little more listening and, and probably laughing and crying to do with, with us here, go check out Rachel Cusick's episode of Radio Lab called The Queen of Dying.
But for now, yes, here you are on You're Going to Die, the podcast with Rachel Cusick. Yeah, so I am Rachel Cusick. I'm a producer at the podcast and radio program, Radio Lab. Uh, and I spent the last year reporting a biography on the life and work and death of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is technically the woman who created these five stages of grief, uh, who I had a very complicated relationship with growing up because I lost my own mom. And last year at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it was actually like when the George Floyd protests were going on and I just looked around at the world and I was like, gosh, there are so many emotions flying around. But the one that I could not help but wonder about was grief. And this textbook that we had on it felt like total shit. And I was like, who created these five stages of grief that are kind of laying in wait for everybody who is about to turn to them? And what tumbled out was this like year of falling in love with her and falling out of love with her and just learning about the complicated person she is and the work that she did to get us to all talk about dying because she like originally had started these five stages of dying, not st five stages of grieving. Um, and that process of reporting on her for the last year, it got interwoven with my own relationship with grief, both from losing my mom as a kid, but then also, uh, my grandma, who helped raise me in the place of my mom, she got sick the week that I had pitched this story. And it was kind of like this parallel experience that I was going through. Um, and then along the way, I met this man who kind of became this father figure for me. And he was a dying man named Tom. And he's at the end of the piece. And he kind of just let me experience like all of these questions I was feeling about my mom and my grandma and the questions that Elizabeth's story raised. So yeah, she's like this, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is like the capsule of the piece. She holds everything together and she's this amazing person. Um, and then it's also this like personal exploration of what it means to die and what it means to stare at death. And I think in your article in the New York Times, your piece in the New York Times and in the the episode, maybe even every single one of these, the things, <laughs> the, the, the death, sex and money conversation with your grandma, I feel like maybe the cookies are mentioned everywhere. But <laughs> that, trail. As, yeah, trail of cookie crumbs. Um, but that it is that earliest way you could. You admit mm -hmm. that, I think, mm -hmm. in your work in these in the in the the New York times piece and in the podcast mm. that at that age, it's kind of the only way it could come out was this um, simple act of feeding the grief, maybe more. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so then all these years later to have it be able to come out in a new, maybe addiction is not the right word, but I do hear like that you worked on this episode for so long. And so then it gave you this way of being with or next to this old grief, the new grief, how the new grief re-triggered the old grief or had it reemerge. I've just mm -hmm. been thinking all about that connection through all those parts and mm. projects. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It is almost like I've thought about grief this last year as this 
companion, I think. Like I used to mm. just push it away. And I think the way I would eat cookies, it was like throwing cookies on top and just shoving it down into the, my body, mm. into my core. Mm-hmm. And this last year working on this story, I actually like had to pull it out. Like I was like pulling something out of a well and let it sit next to me. Um, and it, it is it is like this thing that the way you described it, I just feel that just feels right to me. It, it is like for the first time ever, it was allowed to come sit at the table with me and we were going to like talk about it even with the cookies sometimes, but it was, yeah, it was you're at the there. table, the kitchen <laughs> yeah, table. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's this quote that I came across this week by Carl Jung and it's, uh, he's, he's, he's talking about, um, working with an addict and this is like alcoholism, but his words are his craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst for wholeness or as expressed in medieval language, the union with God. And there's a way that this cookie thing, I don't keep bringing it up is like, let's just deal with cookies for an hour in the podcast. (laughs) I know me too. And that's my point. It's like, I have this way and relationship with sugar and food, especially sweet treats Mm. that, you know, like when I finish a grief workshop with 12 participants who are going through all the things that we humans go through, all these hard parts of being mortal, mm. it's taken like some practice in myself to not, I think maybe these words are giving too much credit to the act of like eating sweet treats after I do an hour and a half of grief work, mm. but that there's a real compulsion I have to like sitting down and watching some kind of entertaining action movie that's mindless and driven with adrenaline and like eating a pint of ice cream um, topped with many cookies, you know, that I've crushed and broken up, you know? And so, oh my God, this has like literally been my last month. And I like, is there another way? Like, have you, have you decided a different way out? It's probably healthier (laughs) because that's what I've been doing. (laughs) I don't know. I almost wonder. Down to the crushed up cookies. (laughs) Yes. like a Tupperware of them in my freezer oh, that are ready to gosh. go. Oh <laughs> gosh, isn't it good? So yeah, I don't know if if the ice cream and cookie crumbles is is taking care of anything, but boy, do we deserve a break. And I'm sure like during the year, you just had to find it sometimes. Like we can't live in the face of all this stuff constantly. And I just wonder how consuming sometimes this podcast episode got for you a year's worth of working on it. Yeah. You know, did you ever feel that like, no, this is just straight overwhelming right now. Cause the episode moves through this factual distance story, maybe in some ways about mm-hmm. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, mm-hmm. but so beautifully, so wonderfully produced in that it, it, brings you to your mother's death and your grandma. And, and so like, so suddenly you may just be, I wonder, were you just working on it and, and it would just be too close suddenly or too yeah. much suddenly? It, it was alarming how it wasn't too much until the very mm. end. Like I made it through a good nine months. It was like, if I was doing a marathon, it wasn't until the very end that I hit that wall. Um, because in the beginning it was just like, Oh my God. It was like, I was peeling back the curtain of this world that I had always wondered about as an adult. And I felt like so empowered and so excited. And I would call people at like midnight to be like, Oh my God, this thing happened. Like I was like leaving voice memos from my coworkers, (laughs) just so energized by it all. And it was heavy stuff. It wasn't like happy go lucky stuff, but it was like, wow, this was out there waiting for me like to be picked out of a tree or something Mm. and then it came to be so tom the man at the end of the episode he died in june um and that 
I think was the beginning of like, oof. All right. Because there's something about talking about grief and death when it's happened in the past. Like it's always painful. And I don't think I've even scraped the depths of the pain because it happened so far away as a kid. There's a little bit of a distance to it. And then with Tom, it it brought it a little bit closer. Um, but still, our relationship felt so special and worthy and like the pain felt necessary so I, again, was like, okay, I can, I can take it. And then a couple weeks more and I started to crack, like, and I think the, the hard part was especially the beginning because just revisiting that trauma as a kid and like with the purpose of like me, myself understanding it and trying to like get meaning out of it. But then also as like a storyteller, when you're trying to like do justice to to this thing that no words can ever do justice to. I would just doing draft after draft after draft, and every time I would just feel like this isn't it. This isn't right. You you can't get it right. You don't understand the pain. The pain is too painful. And there's like a an exhaustion that came, and I like I just straight up like physically collapsed. I was like this. Mm. I can't. Like I can't keep going there. And it. It, it was a kind of exhaustion that felt like a lifetime coming, you know, like mm -hmm. I had never experienced that. Yeah. I think someone had asked me recently, like, why, I don't know how you do it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, I don't know what else to do. And I feel like this episode emerged and you were like, this is the only thing to do. Actually, yeah. there's no, there's no other option, but this right now for yeah. a year until it's done and right. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, you know, you said you kind of run into a wall though at the end of this year and maybe part of hitting that wall was taking the vacation time, but are you still feeling that? What is that what is that wall like or did you break through? No, yeah, this is this is fun cuz I haven't talked to anyone about this. I'm still it wasn't I think when the story came out, the wall slightly faded into the like background, not fully. It's like in the middle ground. Um and there was some feeling about the wall that was like, thank God the wall is here. Like you've mm. been pushing that wall your entire life. And like, you've just hit that wall so hard. You are never going to hit that wall ever again. Like, I think there was a relief that came from the wall. I don't know. I can't tell if like that, that story and that year were just unlike any pain I've ever felt. And maybe I, mm. I don't need to have that all the time, but something about me misses the wall these days or mm -hmm. not misses it. I for sure don't want to go back, but it, it gave me a sense of place that I, that, that I felt was really helpful. I'm wondering, you know, like what is the wall? <laughs> you can be like, listen, dude, I don't want to talk about the wall the whole time, but <laughs> I'm know, just curious about, it's like, what is, <laughs> what is the, what is the wall? I mean, is it like, is it depression? Is it like not wanting to get out of bed? Is it, I don't know what's next? Yeah, yeah. What is it? I think for me, it's like the being okay wall. It's like my whole life as a kid, especially you were like prized for, the, for being okay. It was the thing that our teacher mm. said about us. Mm -hmm. It was the thing the adults in our lives said about us. It was like, wow, those, those Cusick kids, they're resilient mm. and it was this badge of honor that became like 
the cornerstone of who I was was like, I can bounce back from anything. Um, and I was so proud of it. Like, I just loved that, that I had overcome this thing and I could fold it into who I was. And it was beautiful. Like there was just a token of like success that that wall or the being okay symbolized to me. It, it was like a consolation prize. And then I think with this story, just feeling like having to put out a story, but also just like other stuff was going on in my personal life where I was just like, I can't be okay anymore. Like I was oh like, my God. it's just, it was there. It was like this little, little voice that was like, mm. I just want to be okay. And then at this, mm-hmm. like the back end of that is like, but I, I don't want to be okay anymore. Um, and that is the wall for me is like to, to tell everyone that I'm okay. Because even in this, sto- like with the story and my friends who were checking in, like I have a really great support system now. And I was the one building the fucking wall. Like I was mm. kept keeping everybody out saying like, no, 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 no. I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, let me just steer this conversation. Like ask you a bunch of questions, be really dynamic. I know I got all this going on, but like, I'm going to be the one who's okay. Mm. Um, and that the exhaustion of, of being okay was it, it like, there was like a little twig on the inside of me and it just like, <laughs> like it just no, cracked. No. Yeah. <laughs> I just wish you could see my notes. Like I wrote a, I wrote a bunch of notes down just about just responses and questions to the podcasts and, mm-hmm. and to your article. And, um, and then the second page, there's nothing but one question that I wrote for you. And it's, <laughs> Wait, and the question, <laughs> the question is, will everything be okay? Mm-hmm. And that's like something I just was feeling personally, but that I wanted to talk about with you. And so just that we sort of accidentally got to some of the uh, answer to that. Wait, tell me more about this, the question. For, well, yeah, like, because, I, because well, a couple of things I'm feeling, you're so laughy and joyful and, mm-hmm. and so bright from the little I know you, but that's just part of how you speak and how you show up in the the work you do and even your photo you sent, you know, it's just like, I imagine there's that. And I wonder, this is just here. I'm just going to kind of like vomit, speculate for a bunch. I love it. I love it. I love it. You don't, you don't, none of this is true. It's just all the things emerging. Um, And I'm like, how far back did you do that? Because, you know, you describe how people think of the Q6 and that was you at six, like your grandma coming in, you needing to be okay, everyone wishing you were okay. Mm-hmm. And so then you like giving people your okayness yeah. because at that early age, you were getting trained to be like, are you okay? Everybody's like, is she okay? Yeah, yeah. And so then you're doing the work at that early age of like, all right, I okay, how do I let them know I'm okay? And that, mm-hmm. and you just wonder about these unfoldings and how they build into adulthood. Yes. Um, yeah. And And then the question was this, which is, I never want to make any assumptions about loss like yours um, out of the place of my own loss. But, you know, my mom died in 2003 and I was, you know, in my early 20s. And, um, you know, I feel like when you experience loss at a young age, I'm getting like the double whammy of being in my 40s now and, and starting to see subtly, but like the loss of, as you get older, you know, you just, it's just inevitable. Right. But when you're, when you're six 
and you have a loss like your mother's death at that age, there's something that's not okay and that you learn for yourself at that young age. And I, and, and the way I relate is that I had to learn at an early age, probably even, definitely even earlier than, than my mother's death because of the cancer that eventually took her life. That started when I was in my, you know, when I was 13 or so. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, the question comes from, do you, do you know something true too early or so early, I should say? Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. you had to integrate that. Even if you could only put cookies to it, you couldn't maybe put words and, and the thoughts and the knowing to it, but like you lived in it. Yeah. And yeah. so then knew it before most anyone you know. I know. And so I it's think such, that's the question that comes from there. Yeah, it's such a good question. And I don't know if I have an answer for it. I'm really hoping you could clear that my up. My sister me. and I were joking, like we each have our own quests in life. Like every single person has a quest that their whole mm-hmm. life is is trying to figure out. And I think you mm. just hit my quest, which is like, <laughs> what the fuck does it mean to be okay? Uh, I I don't know. I think just like thinking about what you were commenting on earlier, like the jovial, it's it's weird to be the the a happy-go-lucky looking person when you know too much too early and it makes you mm-hmm. question a lot which one's real. Mm. Um, like, it, was I happy before all this started? Truly? Or was it a response and a mask and a performance to knowing the deep sadness of the world? Um, that I don't know the answer to and it it brings me great pain to ask myself that question because you're like gosh is this happiness this this way that I move around the world is this like what I was capable of like I I watch (laughs) there's this little kid that lives down in the apartment down below me and I just watch the way he lives in the world and it he's just like he runs down the street like after his dog he's like I love you and there's just (laughs) like a, a love and joy in him and I look at him and I wonder if that's who I was if none of this had happened or if that's mm. who I am because all of this happened and you needed you needed a way out of it um I don't know I don't I guess I'll never have the answer to that question and it's hard to figure out which is authentic and which is real to you and you you just want parts of yourself that weren't tainted by this thing or at least I do like, God, does every quality of mine have to trace back to loss and like being okay from it? That sucks. Like, that's a terrible way to feel like all your qualities come from this terrible thing. Mm. Um, and I don't think mm. that's me being my most pessimistic self, but those are the questions I think about a lot these days. Um, and I don't know. I think there's such a great, like, will I, will we be okay I, I guess it's that. the only option. I don't know. I, I would like to think we will. Um, but then the question, the like thing after that is like, but like, why do we always have to be okay? Like I, mm. even what you were talking about with just the, like you and the, the whole 30 and not having something after dinner, like having a sweet after dinner when the way you were talking about that, I was like, Oh, what is it like? to just let that wash over you what does it feel like to not Mm. to not push it away to not 
Like I truly, that, that sounds like the mountaintops to me is to be able to like exist in a state where you're not okay and you're not pushing it off, you know? Mm. Yeah. N- now that you bring that it up again, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it did. It absolutely did. And then I was like, I'm also processing and like figuring out an answer, just even listening to you. Cause I think my sense for you is that you would chase a dog joyfully if the right dog came along. (laughs) (laughs) And I think- No chihuahuas, but it was jungle Exactly, I mean, some people don't, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean that, I mean, I don't sense that you're disingenuine when you laugh. And I'm I'm gonna do another dump because you're giving me so much and I'm just like, my brain and heart is very full, but I do wonder if there's a way that the law, it's not that, I wonder if it's not that the loss of your mother defines all these parts of who you are, even though I definitely relate to kind of the concern of that. This like, I don't wanna be defined by my mom having cancer and depression and then dying. And Mm -hmm. so my whole life is built and I exist out of all that. Like I definitely relate to having that thought. Mm -hmm. But then I also wonder, if it just gave us or gave you early understanding or practice or connection to something that is just true. It's like, we come from loss. We come from the dying. Mm -hmm. Like life is born from death. Mm -hmm. Life is, is given out of like what is going away and that it's constant. And so it's, it's, it's getting connected to something that's a big, great truth Mm. that's in Buddhism and, and in, you know, spiritual practice and, and in like philosophy. And, you know, it's like it, it, you can find it in a a lot of places, but to like live it, it then becomes you. Mm. And I can't lately, I've been thinking a lot about this Joseph Campbell quote that really connects to how I experience your work and, and, and now more just who you are as a person. Um, the the quote is uh, participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world mm-hmm. and that hmm. i could be wrong but my sense is like that. you're not covered in masks mm-hmm. like you have access to real joy in spite of and maybe sometimes because of mm-hmm. your connection to the truth of of loss and mm-hmm. this thing that we absolutely all share and we'll yeah. all get present to somehow yeah. unless we live numbed out and disconnected. Even then it's like, it's impacting us. You know, it's like, it's affecting us. Yeah. You can't hide from quote. it. I love that mm. so much. Like I want I to just like write it down. It just, mm. it feels, it feels really, yeah. Like some, I don't know. Like sometimes I feel this, it's like I was let in on the secret, like 30 years early and I'm just like waiting right. for everyone else to get here. Um, yeah, which yeah. is definitely you don't want people in that state of pain all that time. But there is a certain tr- like it's like a contrast, uh, like you when you're editing photos or something. Like I, if you sharpen that contrast, I get so much delight in like very very small things, mm-hmm. and I think it's because I know the deep grief that comes and like how bright those things look right next to it.
This episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by The Death Deck, a lively game of surprising conversations. The Death Deck offers up thought-provoking questions with a large dose of humor to help take the taboo out of the topic of death. It's unique among card decks and conversation tools because this witty game encourages players to share their thoughts and stories about death and dying and mortality, and it also gets people talking about personal preferences on life's ultimate decisions, and all of this in a non-threatening and surprisingly fun way. If you've been listening to the last few episodes of the podcast, you may have heard Nick Jaina, the producer, and I trying the game out. We're not doing anything but just grabbing the deck of cards and pulling a card and reading the questions and just seeing what happens. And it's usually very meaningful and also usually very funny. So we're going to do it again at the end of this episode. So you've made it this far. You're about to get the code so you can go get your own death deck. It's super simple to play and you can play it a lot of different ways. But the main thing you need to do is get the game and then put together a group of brave souls, you know, spouses, significant others, coworkers, friends or family members, and just choose the version of the game you want to play. There's ways you can actually play and get points by guessing each other's answers. And it can just be a conversation starter at dinner. Literally, like, have the deck on the table and pass it around the circle of people feeding their faces with food. <laughs> I don't know why I felt the need to mention that, but it's dinner, so they're eating. I want to really get you, like, in the reality of this happening. Between bites, <laughs> between bites of lots of food that's getting stuffed in everyone's faces, pull a, <laughs> pull a card and read the question and see where the conversation goes. The Death Deck is comprised of 112 questions and designed to be used in a variety of ways, as a party game with friends and family, as a tool among healthcare professionals and senior living centers, as an icebreaker for meetings or conferences, as prompts for discussions prior to completing your estate planning. Because of the many types of questions and audiences, they encourage individuals to stack the deck, like take a look through the questions beforehand and decide what would be best to play with your audience or ignore the advice that I just gave you and pull a card at random and just see where the conversation goes. The main point is you're not going to really get it until you give it a try. And all you have to do is go to the deathdeck.com, pick your little death deck, put it in your cart and use the coupon code YG2D to get $5 off your very own death deck. The death deck, a lively game of surprising conversations. You're going to die someday. You might as well play a fun game about it before you do.
There's a little bit of pressure when you're putting together a podcast episode for uh, somebody that you respect so much who works on something that means so much to you, especially when what they work on is also a podcast, like, you know, a really good podcast that everybody listens to. But it's also an honor to get to have Rachel on the show and get to give a nod to that thing that she created. But Nick and I wanted to create an episode that really acknowledges Rachel for not just that work, but also her precious being in the world. And in a way that's not just sharing clips from the episode that she produced, well, that feels pretty cool too. I asked her if she could send us some audio, maybe some content that she's recorded that she cares something about. And after a few emails back and forth and her looking through some of her her phone recordings, she came upon a couple files that she'd recorded when she was in Arizona at one point during the production of her Elizabeth Kubler-Ross episode when she found out that only 20 minutes away from where she was at the time, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was buried. And so she sent these files and we're so happy to share a little bit more of the story that didn't make it in the Radiolab episode. A little bit extra from Rachel's personal story of working on this episode that you can only get here on You're Going to Die, the podcast. Be in Arizona this week, and I'm looking for something to do this afternoon. And first, I wanted to go to Trader Joe's, but then I realized, hey, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's funeral plot is 20 minutes away. So I'm going to go and pay her a visit. I just think it's kind of beautiful to be here um, because I hated going to cemeteries after my mom died. And uh, they just felt like such grim, sad, depressing places of loss. And weirdly being here after reading about her, it's like it doesn't have to be avoidable like I would avoid cemeteries and because of her I don't feel like I have to hide from this I like I don't know I just feel it's okay it's gonna be okay What everybody needs. Swan Lake. Closer to the office. Alright. Ah! There's a swan in Swan Lake! Okay. 
Uh, if I were in Urn Garden, where would I be? Hi. I'm looking for Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's gravestone. Do you know where that is? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? Do you know, so it said number eight, right, that one. Oh, I see it, right there. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> okay. So, this is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Loving mother and grandmother, compassionate friend, teacher, and student graduated to dance in the galaxies on August 24th, 2004. We'll be loving you always. beautiful to be here in a place like dedicated to the dead to remember them and she's just like faded into the background under a tree and I don't know there's something quiet and lasting about her presence and it's I don't think any of the people here visiting their loved ones probably think about her when they're here, but I just think she's responsible in a lot of ways for like helping people tap into loss. I don't know, there's something so simple about this and so part of the fabric. All right, Elizabeth, thank you for everything. But I'm curious for you, what, what's your answer to the will we be okay? Well, I don't think we will. <laughs> I think that we're gonna, if we give ourselves to life, we will be heartbroken. It doesn't mean that we won't have joy, but like we will experience loss, you know? I mean, it just, it, it feels already too obvious to say it out loud, but it's just the grief and the joy are so interwoven. Mm -hmm. And um, me being so happy to be with you and having this conversation with you is absolutely connected to like how hard life has been or how much grief I've experienced personally, even in the last couple of days. Mm -hmm. And so... I just, I really feel like it's a, it's a pleading, you know, it's like, will we be okay? I was like, I know the answer. Yeah. And the answer is like, all these things are happening to us, all the like grief of the world, the sorrows of the world, they're happening to us all the time because we're connected and we're alive in this like big living thing. Mm -hmm. And then also sometimes it's unavoidable it's so in your face because someone that is a part of your day-to-day -day life who lets you exist more in the world, literally like extends your being here, yeah. that 
you lose that and then it's it's this truth is totally present and mm -hmm. and visible mm -hmm. and that whole idea of the veil getting pulled back and i don't mean to say like there's something wrong with it because because i god there's so much here rachel it's like by the way do you have a hard stop at five no honestly no i'm good so yeah we're, we can keep going Okay, we, we won't go for hours and hours, but it's good to know we can go a little bit past <laughs> yeah, totally. the end of the hour. Um, so I had this I had this experience, you may not include this in the podcast, but I had this experience years ago when I first moved to the Bay Area where, you know, I don't know about past life regression and all that, but I did this session with this body worker that I'd gotten connected to with, through an acquaintance. And... I, it was kind of a trippy experience of this woman would like sing into you, into your, <laughs> into parts of you. <laughs> what would she sing to you? <laughs> I mean, it would be like uh, angelic, operatic, like mm -hmm. high level, not, not, not words, like notes. Mm -hmm. And so the idea would be that these notes were opening up layers of your cells and your physical being, the vibrations. Mm -hmm. oh. But then also part of this work was coming to those places in your body and her guiding you through a, a place. So there'd be a spot maybe that she would sense and she'd say, let's go here, dig here. Can you describe to me what you see in this mm -hmm. kidney area of your body? And so mm -hmm. I would describe, it's like purple pyramids floating in space, like five of them. And she'd be like, go into one of the pyramids. Wow. And so then I would go into the pyramid and she'd say, what do you see now? And, and she would just keep doing that. Keep wow. like leading me forth with huh. these questions. And during one of maybe eight or 10 sessions that I had with her, it only happened once. I, I went into one of these body session explorations uh -huh. and where I showed up after these many layers was in somebody. Huh. And this, this being was in like a cell, like a concrete old, like mildewy, wet, dark, hard cell from medieval times, mm -hmm. like a dungeon of sorts. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in this this being and being able to look through the eyes of this this person and mm -hmm. see a very high up window, but just sense that this body was like flat on the ground. And then pretty immediately getting the sense that this person was dying and that I'd happened to like enter into this, this person as they're exiting the world. Mm -hmm. And the only message I got from that because I because I think she said this body worker was like, what do they say? What do they have to tell you? And the words were from this person that I'll never forget. And it runs through all this stuff. Was it's okay. Hmm. And so hmm. that moment captures both hmm. probably let's just creatively imagine whatever this being lived through to be put in this place. Mm-hmm some kind of martyrdom or torture or whatever, but like imprisonment mm -hmm. and then death. And that in the darkest, hardest, coldest demise, mm -hmm. some being could put the words, it's okay to mm -hmm. total, complete like loss and mm -hmm. um, end of life. And so the question 
probably now I can trace back to all of that, you know, and to even that, that specific story years ago of that bodywork session in that it's not just like joy and grief are interwoven. Maybe there's also like there, it, it will be okay. And okayness actually includes like all of that and integrating all of that hard stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Listening to you talk, I think one thing you said earlier where I was like, yeah, fuck being okay. Like when you were saying something, I was like, it's a terrible word. Feel pain or feel like vibrancy, but like feel something. And okay feels like the like shitty ass middle ground. Sorry. I also don't know how cursing how you feel. I'll no, try great. Let it rip. Cursor. No, okay. let's, let's get comfortable. Um, but, but then when you're talking about that, okay is this like burrito that I see. I think it seems to hold a lot of things in it and mm. now you've spun me around on how i feel about okay like do i because yeah okay is okay like i think tom even said it at the end of the thing he's like they're gonna be okay and like we mm, yeah oh my gosh that's where i cried yeah oh my god that, that, part, that part breaks me every time like i i listen to that a million times over and that's still mm. like breaks my heart a little bit every time i hear it but the I think the okay when he thought about it and the the way that I want to feel okay and the way that it seems like from this body work, like it's this beautiful pursuit <laughs> um, of mm. just swirling together everything. Like you can balance out the, the pain with the joy and swirl it into an okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's work the work of like being fully alive mm. and something that unfortunately <laughs> you're maybe getting good at <laughs> earlier than most people have had to. <laughs> Cause I think the podcast is like a representation of this inner landscape yeah. for you, this inner yeah. world and where it meets the outer world, yeah. where it meets your work, where it meets like an access point. I love this. You said, people could decide like, oh, I don't really need to put myself through that. But what's wonderful, like they'd be like, I don't wanna listen to that. You know, like mm -hmm. don't put me through that. Don't ask me to listen to it. But what's cool about your Trojan horse of a podcast episode is that it's like, it's just about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She's like a famous historian that like, you know, like lived in history and and did this work in grief. And when you say yes to, oh, okay, well that it's really interesting story, like crazy stuff that I didn't know. And I'm always like, I know who Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is, but like when it gets to the ending and the end of her life, that stuff I didn't know. And then suddenly, you said yes to like a really great story that you did such a good job of like putting together with all that work. It's like, I could never, I can't imagine how much time and effort, but just want to just Thank try you. to acknowledge like how special the episode is, even just for that element. Thank you so much. And then, it, then, and then suddenly in the midst of that, you're like, Oh, by the way, everybody, uh, we're going to include me talking to a dying man who becomes a dear friend that dies while I'm making the episode. Oh, and also my grandmother is going to get diagnosed like right out the gates. And so then included in this episode is both my mother's death when I was six and this new cancer diagnosis for my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And 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 then it's too late. You know, it's like you're in it fully. And, and so what I'm trying to acknowledge here specifically with simultaneously acknowledging the work that you put in and the personal work and the like year you put into the episode is that it is this taking all of the inner landscape and the, all of the inner you connecting it to out so much 
in the world and then like placing it a big burrito mm-hmm. outside of you. I love that. <laughs> There's a moment when you transition into like, we're just swirling it all together. It's a rainbow of magic, but I actually like the like, it's a burrito of okayness. <laughs> I want like a t-shirt that says a burrito of okayness. Now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I... I, I I think I approach the world that way where it's like I am gonna Trojan horse is like an expression that I, I like sometimes use where it's like I am gonna get you to talk about grief and pain <laughs> yeah. and loss. We're gonna talk about the world ending, but first let's talk about a rainbow art kit. And I it's totally. like maybe a little bit cruel and I, I wondered a lot for this and I wonder if you feel this way, like warnings about like, okay, like maybe just maybe just like hold this until you're you're in a good spot. Um yeah because there's a little bit of like the burrito is like come on in but it's also i'm like i don't want to trick anybody <laughs> i just no. like want to know what's coming down the line but it is like really it, do it definitely trojan yeah. horse is what it felt like to make it because tom and it was also just the natural flow of making it because i didn't know tom was going to be a part of that story in the beginning like that wasn't the goal uh, mm-hmm. it just happened so it, it really captured the natural flow of reporting and building and just existing but it definitely was a surprise for me too so we we decided to keep it a surprise for everybody else Mm. yeah I, i do totally relate to that i think probably more with your work it would make sense that you know the nature of putting an episode like this together would be such that if it was just like, hey, it's a gre- episode on grief and death and loss, like that's just not the invitation. You know, that doesn't work. It has to be what you did. It has to be Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. That's it. That's why it's so special. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're like, by the way, it gets pretty, you know, heavy. Mm-hmm. And for most of the work I do, that disclaimer is upfront. And I think, like I said, even in the title of our organization, yeah, um, but there are times, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Flashing lights. The, <laughs> it's like Vegas. <laughs> total. But there is sometimes, I think the podcast actually ends up being a version of it where it's like, oh, you should, it's such a great episode, but like, you know, just a heads up, mm-hmm. you know, that it's dealing with some pretty intense stuff. Like it's a, it's an emotional ride. Mm-hmm. And I think probably for people that are really already in it, that's more of a concern. Like I'm kind of like, maybe you put put it this way, even in this time we've talked, but it's that like wake, like the reason why there's a version of okayness that's we're, we're resistant to is because it's complacency. It's okayness like the word can be used to be like, I'm okay, you know? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. no, 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 like I don't wanna hear, I, I, I don't wanna talk to you about your job. Yeah. Like at the insurance company, let's say, let's keep it. And listen to any listeners that are working in insurance. I'm not, I know you're, you know, there's people that are made for these things and I don't mean to like use this particular no, line I had of a work. little stint at an insurance okay. lobbyist back in my day. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that that's your joke because it was Me my thing too. one day. <laughs> Me too. I actually did work for State Farm for three months. Oh, um, no way. <laughs> Yeah, and when I moved like home with my mom, diagram. <laughs> yes, when I moved home with my mom, it's not an accidental reference, you know, it's like I moved home with my mom, she's sick, you know, like showing up at her home in that last year of her life and her like asking me from her her 
essentially what would be your deathbed eventually. Like, am I, am I going to die? Mm-hmm. And she got better for that, you know, for a little while and, and she didn't right away, but it was that kind of return home. And then I need to get a real job to support mm-hmm. like the, And I worked at state farm for like three months. And I remember going to this convention in Sacramento. I lived in Reading, which is about two and a half hours um, from the state Capitol. Mm-hmm. And so I go to Sacramento for, this convention and I remember this moment during the convention when they play that song money and that's like the chant of all these white middle-aged men in this convention center hotel space and I was like I'm gonna pretend like I'm sleeping with my boss like all the way home in the car like I'm just gonna pretend like I'm sleeping in the passenger seat I don't want to talk about this anymore and I'm never doing this work again and I never did I quit the job and uh went and waited tables and it was the best thing I could have ever done it was so fun wow wow oh my gosh what a yeah I think there's nothing like a an insurance convention to really (laughs) kick your butt out of there like you just really had to go to the darkest that's it that's what that's good that's that'll be one of our next events you're going to die presents an insurance convention let's just like lay the line (laughs) which side are you on (laughs) totally um but uh just to go back to your question if i can weave my way back there um this this idea gosh did i get too far away from it just give me one second I'm so excited to talk about all these things with you. And I've forgotten that we're doing a podcast. Um, I know. I'm like, I hope other people find this. I love it. I'm enjoying this as hell. Totally. I'm sure there'll be some editing involved, especially this moment as I try to remember what I was actually trying to answer. Um, The insurance thing. I use that as an example of, oh, right. The okayness, right? This like, I'm okay. Mm. You know, this is my job. I do this. And Mm. like, have you watched the NBA finals? And yeah. And like, I, you know, I get, I want, you know, I get all the, the place these things have. I get the need of like doing a certain kind of work to support your family. Like I get that we're not all privileged enough to work on a podcast for our career or work for a nonprofit that creates space for grief, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I understand that. And I understand like some people really love sports, but like there's certain kinds of conversations that connect to a certain kind of okayness Mm -hmm. that I'm not as interested in. And what I am interested in is like, what are you carrying that defines probably who you are in more ways than anything in your life? And you're not talking about it to anybody. Mm. And I want to talk about that. Wow, that's such a, like, I love, because I think I'm often, I've been thinking a lot about like the one thing that makes a person like for for me i'm like what is the thing that defines my work but then also if you just step back and you're like what's the thing that defines a person mm-hmm. uh and i love that way that you just put it you're like what are you carrying like what's in that backpack that you're not sharing mm-hmm. and that's like guiding everything about who you are and what you do and i all that's like when i go out on dates or if i meet a new person that's the only thing i want to know yeah. about a person and it feels like inappropriate to ask but i kind of just love the way that you put it oh. mm-hmm. I think in a, I think there's a way of getting to that stuff that's like a certain kind of listening too. Mm. I'm sure in your work putting the podcast together and, and doing this the work with Radiolab in general, there's there's a listening that draws out the the content that you care about. Mm-hmm. Do you does that does that description relate yeah. to your? Totally. Like for, for Tom, especially I usually for, for Radiolab, I have questions going into an interview that I don't stick 
directly to, but it's something that I, I'm like, okay, I need to know these details or like, this will be my guide if I'm getting flustered or it's like a really big topic. I need to hit these points. But for Tom, the beauty of getting to talk to him so regularly, was like every week I didn't come in with any agenda. Like I would just Mm. close my eyes and listen to hear him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it created this beautiful thing where every week he just came and he was working through something or he had something had happened or he was really excited about something. And the places we were able to get, I never could have gotten with him if I had come in with questions. It was just listening. Um, And I just think it's this luxury to be able to be able to listen to someone that way, but like this necessary luxury um, because we're always like, what do I need to get out of this interaction? What do I need to know? What are these, what are the like, takeaway points and you lose all of the like moments that he was able to give if you come in with a plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really, really like that. Mm-hmm. And I really, really appreciate <clears throat> him as the example for, for that kind of work. If you could even call it that, you know, yeah, yeah but that kind of listening. Totally. And I, I get it. Like there's a, there's a place that that can happen and not everyone can do that. And even like, I don't know, like there's a little bit of like, my own grandma is like, has terminal cancer and like, I couldn't even get there with her regularly. Like there, it's not everybody's Mm -hmm. able to get there, even if I'm the same exact person and I, I want the same things. Like it's a really difficult spot to be able to return to. And I often think about when I put that piece out, if someone's family member can't give that to them, I don't want them to feel like they've failed or their loved one has failed uh, because it's this like really special confluence of things to be able to make it happen. It's like really rare. Um, But when it does happen, it feels like a freaking shooting star. are you nick uh today <laughs> how you feeling i'm doing all right uh it's a real a real pleasure to work on this episode i i heard the radio led episode and then knew that you were interviewing her and it's just kind of cool to do a companion piece to this episode and get some more insight into it um and it definitely uh, the 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 pop cultural understanding of those stages of grief it's one of those things that's so ubiquitous that it just becomes this kind of superficial joke delivery service, you know, um, as she shows in, in the audio montage in the radio lab episode of all the pop culture references. Um, but it is kind of floating in the background of that, that awareness of those stages and that frustration of, Oh wait, I'm not fitting into these or mm-hmm. I'm stuck in this one. Um, uh, and I was, as, as a fan of you and, and, and knowing how much you deal with, grief and dying i wonder your personal connection with kubler ross and and those stages and how much this uh the, the radio lab episode and the interview with rachel transformed your understanding of it 
Mm. Yeah, I I have to admit that I don't have a very strong connection to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work, although one day, a few years after I'd started You're Going to Die and had created a Twitter account, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross followed me on Twitter, and that felt like like a pretty exciting moment. Um, You know, she was dead already, (laughs) but I I still felt like... I still felt like it was significant, like I was on the right track. Um, uh, That's that's more meaningful when she's, no no offense to Elizabeth (laughs) Kubler-Ross, but for that person, for her to follow you Mm -hmm. after death is extra meaningful, I think. Because before death, she just had assistants managing Twitter, but after death, who knows what's going on. Exactly. I feel like there's like, I've been through it. I uh, lived the life, I lived the grief, I died, I grieved other losses, grieved my own death, died, and now I'm in the afterlife. Now I'm going to get on my Twitter and really <laughs> tap into those people that are doing the really good work in the world for stage, death and dying. Stage six, really get into Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's, supposedly she's working on another book. Um, <laughs> speaking of the books, I have to admit, I've never read any of her books. Mm-hmm. And I think like most people, I have a strong sense for the stages of grief mm-hmm. in that because they were so such a big deal that you can easily get to and not have to read her book yeah and i think with the episode rachel created there's a getting to elizabeth kubler ross in a way that's her humanness and that sheds more light almost on death and dying than even all her work for me personally mm. There's a meme that I came across online through You're Going to Die and connecting to people and the grief conversation. And it simply is like, here's the A to B of grief. This is what people think grief is and how they think it's supposed to work. Here's mm-hmm. the A point and a straight line to B. Mm-hmm. And then the the way grief actually works. Mm-hmm. And it's just a fucking mess yeah. of lines, you know, going all directions and you don't really know. You see a beginning, but you don't see any end and it's just all over the place and that that's true to my experience. And so then the trap of the, the five stages, I feel like having avoided that knowing early on that grief isn't that simple Mm -hmm. and you can go back and feel things again and feel things at the same time simultaneously. And, and I think because I had a sense for that and, and an early experience of that with my mom's death, I wasn't interested in reading the book really. Mm hmm. I felt Mm -hmm. like I knew enough. I'm like, okay, yeah, I know all those. And it seems pretty like packaged well. Uh, I'm not interested in knowing more. But Mm -hmm. now after hearing the episode, I want to read her books. Mm -hmm. And I will probably. Yeah, it seemed like she was one of the early people, at least with a platform, to just sit and listen to people who were dying and hear what they were going through. She was like a proto-Ned. (laughs) there is that way i want to read the books because i feel that connection Mm -hmm. and wonder you know i'm no elizabeth kubler ross but i i relate to what maybe people saw in her eyes when she talked about death and dying yeah and grief yeah speaking of talking about death and dying and grief you want to do a a death deck let's do it all right listeners as you know the death deck is sponsor for this episode And we've been making it a habit, ritual, to play the game at the end of every episode. 
So I'm going to pull a card from the death deck. You can go and get your own death deck at thedeathdeck.com. Remember, you can use our code YG2D to get $5 off your own game. So I'm going to pull a card. I'm not looking at these. I'm just going to read it. Ready, Nick? Mm -hmm. Here it is. Multiple choice. We haven't done a multiple choice yet. Nick. See. You find your app. Oh. I'm sorry. (laughs) Nick, you find your absolute dream home, but learn the previous owner was brutally murdered inside. (laughs) Still interested? Here are your options. A, sure. Assuming. what, what, What? Can I just say that looking to try to find financing to potentially possibly buy a house in the Bay Area, I fully expect the only affordable place will involve that situation. Yeah. You you know what? That's funny. Without we might not include this, but Chelsea <laughs> told me about the house you guys are going to see that the hope is no one wants to live next to a cemetery. So there's some possibility you could get a, a bid in because no one wants to be next to a bunch of dead people. Uh I agree. Um yes, let's let's just uh <laughs> let's assume though that you have limitless funds. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Pick of the lot. Go ahead. So you don't actually go looking for a house first by finding out if someone was murdered there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You find the home, and then it turns out someone was brutally murdered inside. Uh, And I think the car doesn't say this, but since then, the bodies have (laughs) been removed. Like I picture, I picture like a filter, a filter option on Zillow where you can specifically search yeah. for, murder? It, yeah, and 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 then w- I I look only in the ones that that do have the murder. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, are you still interested? Uh, and I just want to say I don't know what the rules are for definitively needing to be followed, but this is a multiple choice. You might have another option you want to throw in the mix here, but. Okay. A, sure, you're still interested, assuming they've done a spectacular cleanup job. (laughs) B, maybe you're interested, depends on where it happened. Uh, Or C, no way. Once a murder house, always always a murder house, which I think assumes if you move in there, C is like, you will murder someone likely. Like the odds of you murdering someone is high or you being murdered. And then the maybe depends on where it happened. Like is the bat? Like you'd be like in the bedroom, yeah. no way. But in the bathroom, yeah. Where's a good? I'm not place? in there as much. Yeah. Uh, what do you say? What do you say, Nick? I mean, I'm I'm definitely a. And uh, if you couldn't tell already, I just feel like in the whole scope of this continent and the whole settling, as they call it, of this continent, you know, there's murder. There's murder on every square inch of this this territory. Mm-hmm. And so, where are we going to draw the lines? Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, hard uh, point. I think the thing is, I would say sh- yes. And what would I do to make that space like not murderous? It would take it on maybe sp- the work of freeing ghosts from that space. Or uh, have you seen the Have you seen the film A Ghost Story? Yes. Okay, I have. I just saw it, and I'm thinking of that and. Mm. you know in that story like the 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 husband dies and then he's just walking around this house as a ghost um and you know he can't it seems like he can't really fully understand what to do or how to interact he's just sort of like in a fog is is how i how i feel like they're depicting 
being a ghost in this situation. And he just kind of, mm-hmm. and he's kind of chained to the house and he kind of sticks around and new guests come in and he's just kind of frustrated, but he doesn't know what to do. And then he throws some plates and like, they think it's haunted. And so I don't know, from that perspective, it gave me a lot of insight of if I was the living person moving into a house where somebody died, that they would just need, it would be like dealing with someone with Alzheimer's or, or, or someone with dementia who's lost and wandering around. Like I, uh, maybe that's naive to say, but I would think you would just need a lot of care and understanding and maybe some kind of hard boundaries and so- sort of brusqueness to just be like, it's okay. You don't belong here anymore. I- we need you to go. You know, like that sort of mm-hmm. dealing would be the-, the way to deal with that. If that if that is how ghosts linger in a house. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, I hope that anyone who's not seen the movie, trying to remember like if you just gave away a pretty major plot. I think point. that's the conceit of the movie. Is it? I feel it's like, called a ghost it's story. like later you realize he's <laughs> <laughs> realize he's been murdered or died. Uh, so, uh late uh spoiler alert, y'all. Um uh cool. I, I don't recommend the film. Okay. Do you do you recommend it? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I I, yeah, I understand. I mean, I liked it, but I think it'd be an uncommon like it's uncommon that someone would like it. Maybe I'm like being elitist. No, it's it's very slow and minimalist. Um, mm-hmm. It's not fast five. No, which I do recommend. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's for another podcast but th- episode. Think of all the ghosts piling up. You know, I just imagine there could be a companion movie to the Fast and Furious franchise showing <laughs> all the ghosts lingering around. This, that's interesting. On the uh, I don't know the drag strips or wherever the. I do have something to say about oh, that. Oh, okay. Well, because you know that Paul Walker, spoiler alert, Paul Walker died. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, In real life. Mid-filming. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the way they've handled that loss is that he is still alive and referred to in the movies that have come out since. So there's a way that, that Fast 9 does intersect with Ghost Story a little bit. And they, the ghost of Paul Walker. So his character doesn't die at all no not in the yeah not in the movie it's just like part way through the film i'm kind of i don't really remember how they handle it but he's just sort of it's almost like he's like i'm retiring i don't want to do do this anymore you never get the conversation in the movie but like there's a sense that that's it like he's bowed out of all these adventures yeah but still comes to the barbecue i'm sure there's a, a really early retirement age for fast and furiousing what, what's the well, what's the action? Not that according doing? to Dra- uh, it, drifting. Yeah, Are they drifting? It's, well, it's that's an interesting question because it does start as kind of a drag race thing, and then it 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 devolves or evolves depending on what kind of fan or not you are um, into saving the world. Oh, really? Really ridiculous levels of ad- adventure and Didn't expect um, that. action. You've seen them. Yeah, it, it's you've seen it's, them all. I've seen them all. <laughs> They're fun. They're fun. This last one wasn't my favorite, uh, but it did involve driving a car in space. Hmm. So just to give you a sense for how far out they're going. It's hard to get traction in space. Yeah, I agree. Um, but with the right rockets and the good and the good team, uh, you can make a lot of cool things happen, and they do. 
Um, I don't know where this podcast episode has gone. I'm not sure how much of this we're going to want to keep in uh, or not. Went from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross to Fast and Furious. It's really simple A to B progression. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, well, then I think we should leave it there. That's the arc. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, Nick. If I don't say it enough for your your friendship and your work, I love this episode and I'm so glad we got to work on it and uh, couldn't do it without you. Yeah, thank you. I agree. Uh, it's been great. Love you too. I don't know if I said I love you, but I, <laughs> I do love you. <laughs> I do love you though. Okay, and I love you guys too. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.